welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. The role that boards play in providing oversight for presidents and guidance for university trustees is more critical than ever. To talk about that role and how his organization supports those efforts, I'm pleased to welcome Henry Stover, President and CEO of the Association of Governing Boards in Washington, D.C. In addition to providing research, policy updates, training for boards, etc., AGB runs a consulting service for boards, and I'm hoping you can talk more about that assistance today as well. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Karen. It's great to be with you today. So we're in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak. How are you and your staff managing through this? Uh, quite well, actually. Um, we fortunately have uh, 100 years of experience of working with uh, higher education governing boards. And over my last, almost last year at AGB, we've been focused on promoting what I call strategic governing boards. And now more than ever, higher education needs strategic governing boards. And the big difference between a governing board and a strategic governing board is really a mindset shift. Um, a governing board might think they can just be fiduciaries and show up. Uh, and listen to reports from the management team and the president or chancellor. Uh, however, a strategic governing board realizes they need to lean in. And uh, I recognize and uh, use this NIFO, excuse me, I use a, uh, an acronym called NIFO, noses in, fingers out, because boards oversee, management teams do. Um, but during crisis, to answer your question, uh, the perceptions and where that line of NIFO exists shifts because um, frequently uh, the management team may not have the experience and skill sets to navigate through a complex crisis like we are in now. And therefore, the board needs to lean in more and empower and encourage and assist the management team to do things it never has. In the past. Um, so what we are asking our boards and our all boards and our members to do are three things. One, increase their amount of time and their engagement in, uh, with, the, with the management team. And in some cases, uh, we have, we're hearing boards meeting daily. Uh, if, not, uh, if not daily, definitely weekly or biweekly uh, to really understand. Uh, what's going on, and how should the boards adapt? Number two is engaging from a strategic, what I call redo, real quick, because uh, what has been the historic strategy will not be the strategy of the future. I promise you, higher education will not return to the way it was, unfortunately. And number three is around uh, financial stress testing. So these three things work in collaboration or in conjunction with one another, more time, more strategy, and more financial review. And I've talked with several presidents and chancellors and provosts who candidly admit, I've never had to conduct financial stress tests. I may have created scenarios, and most people have done scenario planning, but not stress tests. And the big difference between a financial stress test and a, and a scenario is it's kind of like if you had a, a target expectation and what do you have a high and a low? Well, the stress test means three to four X low, um, i.e. 
You don't return to campus in the fall. You don't have sports for the next year. You have to reduce the number of uh, teams from X to Y. Uh, all these different scenarios, people have never had to consider. However, they now have to consider them. And what are the intended and unintended consequences of decisions? And that's where the board comes into play. That's where a strategic governing board comes into play now is because the management team needs to partner and collaborate with the board to make the appropriate long-term decisions or decisions for the long-term. So hopefully that gives you a, a quick summary of uh, what we've been up to and how we're uh, asking our boards to adapt to this current scenario. It really does. And, and one of the things that made me think about this, so let's take, for example, many institutions right now are on that precipice of trying to decide if they can um, come back virtually in the fall or some hybrid or some, some way of looking at it in a different model. How involved do boards get in that kind of decision? Very much. They, they should be anyway. And the decision it comes in from a financial perspective. Um, be, because if you decide not to come back in person in the fall, the next question is, do you charge, is your tuition rate, whether you're in-state, out-of-state, public, or excuse me, private, um, what is the tuition that is associated with that full semester of remote learning going to be? And many people thought initially that the tuition would remain the same uh, as what it would have been uh, in a, on an in-person basis. However, many students and parents have responded to the contrary. And um, that's what puts significant pressure and strain on the system. And that's when the board needs to come into play. The board doesn't need, uh, boards do vote on tuition, but boards need to figure out, help the management team figure out where are we going to, where do we want to be, uh, which programs, academic programs have we done, and which ones should we prioritize and continue to do into the future? Because I said before, as I mentioned before, uh, higher education will not be the same in the future as it has been in the past. Should boards presume that the delivery of online content might dominate their institution going in the future? Well, the first question is, how do you define dominate? How do you define future? Um, I think it will be a component of uh, the academic quality de definition into the future. Um, I also think about, at some point, I don't know how many years into the future, uh, we will return to going to uh, class on campus and go to football games and basketball games and field hockey games and things of that nature. Um, but this isn't a discussion about the medical world. <laughs> I don't know when that's going to be. Um, so I do think uh, it will be a component of online, of, of the academic quality. My, the question for me is, how do boards oversee academic quality? And it's not a new question. It's a question that strategic governing boards should have been asking for the last hundred years. Whether you're purely in person or purely online or some hybrid model, 
the question to me um, comes into play around four different components of this uh, series of sequence of events. Enrollment, um, retention, graduation, and then employment. So to me, there's four those four different components of the cycle, and maybe there's five or six uh, components, but at a macro level, you've got to recruit, get them there, get them through so they graduate, and then get a job. Now, I realize that some people define uh, the role of the academy to be uh, more social, focused on, not social from a partying perspective, but the social well-being of our democracy, et cetera. And that is true. That is the, the power of liberal arts and the value of liberal arts. Um, I do believe that the majority of students actually do go to uh, college in order to get a new or better job than they had before. Um, and so the question is, how do boards need to oversee academic quality um, to ensure the uh, maximum value perception at the outcome of the students or the culmination of the students' uh, time on campus? So in context of all of that, in 2018, AGB came out with guiding principles for intercollegiate athletics uh, for boards and giving them some real uh, concepts to gather their heads around as to what role boards play in oversight for college athletics. You know, we've heard of the boards who are boosters, but we also know that boards have a very critical responsibility for the health and fiduciary responsibilities for the institution. So in light of everything that you just said, and the guiding principles that you have, what advice do you have for boards today in oversight of this real problem about whether we have college sports in the next year or two? Let me give you an intro to, your, to answer that question, so to speak. Um, I believe there are six key principles of strategic board leadership. And just real quick to give you the six words, accountability, the board president relationship, strategy, board composition, risk oversight, and commitment, both in time, mind, and wallet. Um, and so that, from a laying the, uh, establishing the foundation for expectations of a trustee or board member enables me to kind of answer your question around uh, what we, how we advise boards to uh, think about athletics in the next year. First and foremost, um, realizing why do we have athletics? Now, it may seem like a silly question to ask sometimes, but in any strategic conversation, you should ask, the, the first question should be, why have we been doing that? What is the linkage of, I'm being very generic, doing that? Whether we have international programs, we have an English department, whether we have a football team, whatever that is, because um, it's all about resource allocation. Um, so the first question is, why do we believe doing that? And your question in that is athletics. How does that align with our mission? And how does athletics, and how do athletics elevate or augment or strengthen our mission? Now, I can answer this, A, from a governance perspective, and B, from an athletic perspective, because I played sports for four years in college myself. And I do think it is a component or can be a, a strong component of an academic mission. 
Um, so the first that ask why have we done it and what are we what are the outcomes that we expect? Uh, is it because we want a more engaged alumni base and a more engaged student base and uh, things of that nature? Is it financial? Now in reality, most of the 3,000 institutions of higher education, most of them don't have profitable athletic programs, um, unfortunately. So only a few are very, very uh, financially uh, stable and sound. So you got to ask, why are we doing that? And should we not do that? Um, or should we continue doing that in the future? And we've already seen some institutions that have made decisions to cut certain teams. Um, I know the NCAA is thinking about, well, um, when do, do we move the fall to the spring and have a fall spring combo, which would be a lot of things going on? Or do we even, worst case scenario, we don't have a 2021 season. We have, we got to wait to go a whole calendar and we don't do sports again until uh, the fall of 21. Uh, so that's the, the role of the board, back to your question, the role the board needs to figure out why do, why does that and how does that activity um, reinforce our mission? And if we don't do it, what are the financial uh, impacts of not doing it? And what do we then do given the outcomes, i.e. incremental cost um, and lost revenue, things of that nature, uh, so that we can hopefully get to a day in the future when we can uh, do sports again, if that continues to be a component of the academic mission. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point is that so much of the retrenchment that when we're inevitably going to see revolves around the academic mission. And I think that's where people are starting to get worried about how do you continue paying coaches' salaries, facility debt, um, game guarantees, all the contractual things that you're normally obligated to. What kinds of advice would you have for trustees that, that where you know you have uh, contractually obligated um, positions in athletics? Well, as I said before, the board uh, doesn't um, make decisions on contracts. The management team runs the organization, runs the institution. Um, the board needs to ensure that the contracts are in, in alignment with uh, the academic mission and the f financial uh, outcomes that they associate with. Um, the board can advise um, and can may suggest and in some cases you may suggest that you have to get out of a contract um, but it's not the board's decision to do that. If the board should oversee our, how are we thinking about our academic contracts or our faculty contracts if we're talking about tenure it's the same kind of dis discussion we have a contract with some person. How do we navigate through that? And do we need to continue that? Um, so it's a really interesting uh, predicament, but the board needs to make sure it's part, of, it's part of those conversations from a strategy perspective. Start with strategy and end with strategy. Right. And as long as the board stays at the strategic level and provides tactical oversight and insight, the outcomes can be favorable. Do boards need to get into the weeds when it comes to federal policies like Title IX and, and other kinds of um, um, regulations that the institution has to pay attention to? Or do they trust that the management of the institution is going to manage that? Uh, yes and yes. 
Um, <laughs> they need to be aware of and they need to oversee. So there was a, uh, a phrase that somebody shared with me years ago called trust and verify. So yes, you need to trust. That was part of your question, Karen. Do, does the board need to trust that, that the management team is doing the right things? Yes. And it needs to verify. So for example, um, how are we making decisions within the context of athletic uh, contracts or athletic coaches contracts or uh, contracts with other um, uh, sponsors, things of that nature. So it's not for the board to make the contractual decision, but oversee and provide guidance uh, so that the outcomes are aligned with the strategy. Yeah, that makes sense. I would think that this is going to be one of the hardest things that we try to bring sports back is how do we do it in compliance with gender equity laws. We can't just bring back right. men's sports and not bring back women's sports. Yeah, so it needs so the board needs to be aware of the regulations. That's why I'm a big fan of having a, a sharp general counsel uh, on, on the team. And I know most all institutions, whether, whether it's retained or on staff, but you got to have uh, people that you can uh, lean into it's kind of like cyber as a, as a risk. I know we're talking about athletics here. doesn't mean you need to have a cyber expert on the board or a cyber expert on the management team, but you need to know who to go to if you don't have the financial capacity. So in this case, if you don't have the financial capacity to have a athletic expert from a legal perspective on the management team or, or somebody on the board, but who do you go to to make sure that you're doing things appropriately in alignment with uh, the law? So some boards have athletic subcommittees that provide oversight. Any recommendations on best practices for them? Uh, so if we first look at uh, reality, the reality is that like 6% of all boards have an athletic committee. So it's a topic that's not for the majority. It's uh, a topic for the minority. Um, and the second part is for those who do uh, think so boards that think they need to have a committee why the first question is why do we need to have a committee specifically about athletics the second part is what are the outcomes of that committee and what are their roles and responsibilities and this is where we even at AGB for our board committees we review our bylaws on an annual basis because what was written a year ago may not be the same reality today. And in a lot of cases with bylaws, they were written 10 years ago. Or in some cases, you don't even, even have charters for each committee. So I think that the first part is to review the expectations of the committee to make sure the board is in alignment with those expectations. Um, once you've done that, to me, there are components of that. Financial, um, contractual, as you mentioned, uh, academic. What are our expectations of our student athletes? Safety. Uh, you know more than I do, Karen, about uh, concussions and even being a former football player. Uh, we didn't even use that word too much 30 years ago. Um, but the health and safety uh, is a is a key concern of every uh, administrator and trustee. But to me, more important than that, what are the key metrics that the board needs to oversee the athletic uh, at the athletes to ensure that they complete their academic journey. And it's to ensure that this consistency of standards are applied for athletes versus non-athletes. Um, so 
thinking about the KPIs of how does how do our athletes um, align with our um, our enrollment criteria? How do our athletes align with our graduation criteria? And to me, the um, one of the key metrics that I personally think is important is graduation rate. And um, how can we get people through, even in, in a, if it's uh, you know, four or five years, if you have a redshirt year, but how can we get people through? Because at the end of the day, the purpose of college or a university is to learn and to be better prepared to be contributing members of society in the future. Um, that's the primary role. The primary role is not to be an athlete. That's a byproduct, I personally believe. Um, so if the board decides to have a standing or an ad hoc committee on intercollegiate athletics, they need to be make sure that they, they ensure impartiality towards athletics and athletes uh, of all, across all members of the committee. They need to share and discuss uh, finances academic criteria, as I mentioned before, and assess reputation risks um, within the committee and with the full board. So to me, I'll wrap this up by saying risk is a full team sport. Yeah. It's a full board sport. It, yeah. Risk, you may have a risk committee. I know you asked me about athletic committees, um, but risk is a full team sport, meaning it's a full board sport, but there's significant risk around uh, your athletic programs, and how do we oversee that as a component of the institutional risk profile? Absolutely. I could not agree more. Um, the last question I want to ask you is, I'm hearing some rumblings as I talk to my colleagues in athletics about the possibility of once again having something called conference realignment, where because of the financial constraints, schools start to play in conferences, quite frankly, located closer to their campuses. How, should, how much should boards be involved in that issue? Um, well, one of my colleagues, uh, her name is Carol Cartwright. She uh, serves on the board um, of the Knight Commission and for about the last 20 years, if not more. And I, uh, I lean into her quite a bit um, intellectually, I should say, um, to understand how boards need to um, kind of address these situations and one thing she did mention is that boards do need to get involved when it comes to conference selection and changes because it changes the risk profile good and bad it changes the financial profile of the institution good and bad um, because there's expenses and revenue and things of that nature so uh, the board does need to uh, get involved when it comes into not only like we were talking before about the policies and things of that nature of athletes or, uh, or uh, contracted coaches, things of that nature, but ensuring that there's the board is accountable for integrity of the athletic department as a component of the academic mission, um, but specifically around uh, changes in conference, the board needs to be a part of that conversation uh, so that they are aware of the financial risks and opportunities associated with that decision. It's the same conversation, Karen, quite frankly, about are we going to build uh, a new building? Are we going to build a new uh, medical center? Are we going to uh, renovate the, uh, the football stadium or something like that, which is capital? Um, and it, it provides a more risk 
to, it increases the financial risk profile of the institution and shifting um, conferences may exacerbate uh, the financial risk profile of an institution or it might be quite favorable because there could be uh, a decrease in costs, um, but how are those costs uh, decreases in alignment with decreases in revenue potentially. Right, right, right. Well, Henry, I really want to thank you for taking some time. I know I've learned a lot and I'm hopeful, hopeful my listeners have too. You give me an awful lot to think about. Well, it's great to be with you today. Um, I think if, if your listeners take away one thing today, I think about boards are a strategic asset for the institution uh, and trustees should focus on um, becoming an, a strategic partner for their institutions. And that's why uh, AGB is such an incredibly important uh, ally for our trustees uh, since we've been around for more than 100 years and representing more than 40,000 trustees across uh, 2,000 institutions. So uh, I think about take away one thing, it's boards need to be, you know, should be thinking about learning how to become strategic governing boards and trustees can be strategic partners for the institution to drive student success and institutional vitality. Great advice, Henry. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Karen. After listening to the conversation with Henry Stover, it got me thinking about an article that I wrote recently for Forbes about helping trustees and presidents understand the, the real down-to-earth granular problems that um, trying to make a decision about returning athletics to campuses in the fall of 2020 entails. I wrote an article recently for Forbes talking about this, and let me share some of that with you. So my article title is, Without a Vaccine, There's No Way College Athletes Can Play This Fall. And I realize that that headline is jarring, but let me explain. You know that I have a deep background in college athletics and in higher education. And I've been thinking a lot about what kinds of things need to be thought about in order to make a decision of this magnitude because it involves so many people and has so many tentacles. So let's think about this from a granular level and decide whether you think college athletes can compete this fall. So consider this. From the time college fall athletes arrive for preseason practice until the end of their season, these athletes are in the same physical space with someone or something touched by many other human beings. Think about these particular areas of a practice facility alone. Think about the equipment room. All the equipment for all the teams is stored and washed every day in one area how will that area be regularly sanitized and tested? Think about the training rooms, the tables, the carts, the machines, the whirlpools, the scales, the floors, the doors. How many times a day will all those surfaces be wiped down and cleaned? The weight rooms. If you've been to a gym in the last year, you know that there's an emphasis on taking care of the weight facility after you leave a piece of equipment. But there's going to have to be more than that because athletes hustle. They get in and out of there quickly. So will a cleaning staff be needed to follow behind every athlete to clean each weight bench, each strength machine, each platform, each stretching station, every treadmill? And of course, there's always bus travel and how teams get packed onto buses and the amount of physical space and lack of social distancing that occurs in those 55 passenger buses. It's just not... 
it's just not realistic to get a bus any bigger. So you get the idea. In the four areas that I just mentioned, if a typical fall season hosts, let's say, five sports and 200 athletes, those facilities will be busy at least 12 hours a day, six days a week. But here's the point. The contact points don't stop there. The practice fields are full of contact points. The equipment, the game balls are all touched by everyone at some point. How do you clean those during practice? And for those athletes who don't have access to athlete-only dining halls, they will travel back to campus to eat. So will every single food worker be temperature tested every day? How will you monitor who's going in and out of that facility? Then from there, the athletes travel to their residence hall or their off-campus apartments. Again, there's more contact points. Who do their roommates interact with? Who cleans the apartment? Are the dishes cleaned at a temperature that kills bacteria? You know 18 to 22 year olds. Does anyone accidentally share glasses or silverware? And what do they do between the time they arrive home and the next practice? Go out with friends? And the cycle then continues. So I haven't yet described a typical classroom space or a coffee shop or a group study room or even the lounge furniture. Consider how many people intersect in those spaces every day. How thoroughly are those spaces cleaned? Once per day? Five times per day? What's the strategy? Here's the bottom line and the parts that concern me the most. After accounting for all of these contact points in just one day, multiply it by the number of athletes, trainers, assistant coaches, and managers on each team. Then consider this scenario. One person somehow comes into contact with a virus carrier and brings the virus to the squad the next day. In two to five days, let's say, the normal incubation period, that one person has potentially infected many other people inside that team. Some show symptoms, some don't, but multiple players become carriers. Those carriers take the virus back to the campus population. The ones showing symptoms are tested, then isolated, and contact, contact tracing begins. It is obvious this original person who was initially infected may now force the entire team to go into quarantine for 14 days and potentially other non-athletes. At that point, the athletic department will need to adjust season start plans. Opposing teams will need to be contacted and decisions made about the future of in-season contests. Will there be enough players to play? Is the coach quarantined, the athletic trainer? Then here comes the public relations conundrums. What to say to the media? We didn't think it could happen to us. We took every precaution by cleaning every facility every day. And then the families of the athletes will be furious. They allowed their son or daughter into this situation. They would have been safer at home, they muttered to themselves. How could X university have been so short-sighted, they wonder aloud. We simply have to be smarter than this. Please don't think I'm being overly dramatic. This is a virus that has no known vaccine, no known cure. We know it spreads from person to person. The Centers for Disease Control state, some recent studies have suggested that COVID-19 may be spread by people who are not showing symptoms. College athletes being directed to come back to campus to start the season, creating the sense that campus will quote unquote return to normal in fall 2020 is not only wrong, it is exploitative at the highest order. What do you say to your professional staff if this happens? To the equipment manager who stays on site and interacts with hundreds of athletes, 
sweaty equipment, and laundry after every practice. Or the assistant coach who worries about bringing the virus home to his own small children. Or the athletic trainer who is also taking care of an aging parent with comorbidities. We have to be smarter than this. I struggled to write this. It's tough to be so blunt with something that is so invisible. But we are supposed to be intelligent leaders. We are supposed to care deeply about our students' health and well-being. And if we bring college athletes back to campus before it is really, truly safe, we are allowing them to be human guinea pigs. And that's just not right. Thanks for listening.